Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross. For 80 years, Capital Blue Cross has offered products that provide peace of mind and promote good health. Focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like its Capital Blue Health and Wellness Centers that provide in-person service and inspire healthy living. Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross. Live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, who has offered transapical mitral valve repair procedures for more than three years and currently serves as a trial site for over 50 clinical trials. Information at upmcpinnacle.com slash myheart. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Hanukkah begins at sundown tonight. Christmas is less than two weeks away and Kwanzaa three weeks away. It's the holiday gift-giving season, and for many people, one of the most special presents could be a book. On today's program, we have a few recommendations for books to give or put on your wish list this year. Joining us, Catherine Lawrence, co-owner of the Midtown Scholar Bookstore in Harrisburg. Catherine, always good to see you. Thanks for having us. And Travis Kurowski is an assistant professor of creative writing at York College of Pennsylvania. Travis, good to see you, too. You, too, Scott. Thanks. Let me have you move your microphone over there. There we go. <laughs> All right. If you have a question or a comment, actually what we're looking for from you today is books that you're reading, books on your wish list. Maybe talk about some of your favorite genres, too. Give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at org. You also can leave your list of books or your wish list on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at SmartTalkWITF. Again, the phone number, one 800 This is always one of my favorite shows of the year. We always have a great conversation. So it is a lot of fun. And I think that uh, it's one of those shows where we give some ideas, some gift-giving ideas to a lot of people. And I, I have to admit, I, I told you before we went on the air today, Catherine, that, uh, and I think that probably a lot of people see this or experience this, that on your list of books, recommended books, I saw one that I said, ah, I got to tell my wife, I want that book. And so, you know, maybe we'll, uh, we'll have that same experience with a lot of our listeners today. But uh, before we get started with the book recommendations, I always like to talk about trends. And there are several, as I was doing research on this, there are several that I wanted to ask the two of you about. Uh, one, a, a headline that I saw from uh, a story earlier this year that said, print books are the new vital, meaning <laughs> that uh, in 2017, there were a lot of people when it came, came to music that turned back to albums, vinyl records, rather than going digital. And this was a comparison or, uh, you know, making an analogy with that, that with print books. Right. Have you seen that? I Well, you know, as, um, as we were used booksellers before, we were new booksellers. Right, right. And so I think mm. from the used book endeavors, there's long been a sense I know and have seen of the um, sort of nostalgia that comes when you purchase a book or you search for a book that is maybe out of print that you read when you were growing up and now you want to pass on to the next generation. And so that that sense of uh, collecting books as you might records in a, in a nostalgic sense is certainly there. I think, though, there is another aspect, which is the sort of the physical object of a book that is really useful. So, you know, it's not just CDs versus vinyl, it's MP3, audio files, right. or live streaming, and uh, and compared to, say, audiobooks or ebooks, as we were discussing before. And I think that um, there is still a great interest and desire to hold a book and read it and then read it again and then share it with someone. And that, that communal act of reading and discussing books works much more efficiently, really, with a printed object. It, it becomes something of special um, a point of reflection that you want to put on your shelf and see and remind yourself of. And that's different from the consumption of stories and narratives, which we are, you know, people are reading a lot these days in uh, in e-forms, whether it's digital news or what have you. But the, uh, the different from consuming a book, there's that collection. And right. I think that continues. Yeah. And, right. you know, and uh, we're, I mean, the object of this show today is to talk about books as gifts. 
it's kind of hard to give a an ebook. You can do it, I guess, but at the same time, uh, that's one of those things I can see the person getting the gift. Hey, thanks. Right. <laughs> can't wrap it up, can't put a bow. Well, maybe you can. I don't know. Travis, I'm curious about your students and uh, what the trends are because, I mean, your students are growing. They, they grew up with all kinds of technology, iPads, computers, everything. But when it comes to this trend, as far as print versus uh, digital or e-books, what do you see? So, yeah. So I've been teaching at York College since 2009. And, yeah, I had the same kind of feelings as you. We have a young generation, the, the millennials and Generation Z, growing up with iPads and on the Internet, right? I was an early adopter of e-books, and so I figured I'd walk into the classroom and walk across college, and they would be as enthusiastic or more enthusiastic about ebooks and digital reading technologies than me. But it's been exactly the opposite. Like, they've actually been much more kind of reliant on and demanding of the, the print technology, right? That whenever we have conversations in class or surveys across classrooms or the population about if they would rather have print or ebooks, they, they generally choose print. And I think it's about what, what you're talking about, Kathy, about this relationship to print versus that consumption of, of ebooks and digital, digital reading strategies. Mm-hmm. They read a lot online. They, they're always staring at their phones, walking around. But when it comes to actually having a book and having a relationship with a book that matters to them, I think they're smart to know that the actual book technology of, of the codex of the book Yes. is a different relationship. It's something you can actually engage with. It's a mnemonic advice, device where you remember where you're reading, you remember what you're reading, you go back and look at it later in a way that you can't as well with e-books. Yeah. Now, now so, you picked up a book. We're on radio, right, so uh, I have to describe uh, this. What <laughs> book did you pick up? I'm going to use that as a recommendation, our first recommendation. So um, just before the show, Kathy and I were talking about about Walden, John Muir, um, Von Humboldt, and other, other um, American and other writers about, about the West and about the land. And I pushed this book upon her, and I said, well, you have to read this book. I do. Um, I'm getting this now. <laughs> this is the, the Hour of Land by, um, by the nonfiction writer Terry Tempest Williams. Um, it was recommended to me by, by someone I knew over the summer. I've personally been trying to you know, not run with, with headphones on, um, spend more time meditating and in silent spaces, right? And this is a book I really needed to read at the time I read it this summer. Um, Terry Tempest Williams has, um, for generations, had a, a great um, history and uh, experiences through um, the nation's um, national parks um, from Yosemite mm-hmm. um, to, to the, um, the, the Theodore Roosevelt Park um, in North Dakota to, to many parks, and she chooses one per chapter to write these essays and these sort of like personal histories and broader sort of national narratives about these parks in a variety of styles and almost like a it's almost like a, a poetry and prose experience where I was telling Kathy before I pick it up I thought writing about national parks might be kind of kind of boring and kind of kitsch and kind of kind of expected but they're exactly the opposite these are these words are, come alive on the page they're like they're like written fire about these places that that are all we inherited as, as citizens about the land and the things we pass down to our kids and, and to, to the world's population that comes and visits the United States. So what did you get out of it? I mean, I, you just gave a great uh, description. Well, but. Well, I, I, I was talking personally with Kathy earlier about this, too, and, and of course, I, I thought about this when I was reading it. I grew up in Oregon, um, and so I spent a lot of time at Crater Lake, um, hiking on Mount Hood, uh, up, up north in, um, at Mount Rainier and another national park in, in Washington. And since college, I've seen... Upon reflection, my life sort of moved away from the land, right? I, I, I got two bachelor's degrees, a master's degree, a PhD. I moved across the country. I spent some time in New York and Boston, and now here in New York. And I've hiked less. I've camped less. And I've seen that reflected on what I do with my kids as opposed to what my parents did with me. We're in a busier time. We're more informed. But I feel like I'm less kind of – I don't know myself or my, my environment as well as I used to. And so reading the book, reading her real, real personal and real sort of just – visceral sort of evocations of what those lands mean to her really reminded me of what what they meant to See, me. I, you know, I can very much relate to that because, and I, and I think a lot of people do this when they decide to read a book or, you know, decide on a certain book, is that even though lives have changed over the years, there's something to be said about going back Maybe not to your childhood, but another time in your in your life, and uh, you know, a, a time that reminded you of something that you really enjoy, that you do like. And right. I think a lot of books do that, take you back. I mean, I have no problem. I, I enjoy reading books about the '60s and the '70s because I remember those things. Right. And I mean, most I'm talking about are nonfiction books, but that I remember those things, even though I was young. Um, you know, I remember them as they were happening and say, "Oh, I didn't know that." And in hindsight. 
you can learn so much about what happened 50 years ago. Right. You get a new perspective of a time through which you lived or experiences that you had, whether it was visiting a park or, I don't know, going to a to a, a public talk years back. And then, um, so I read Walden when I was, we can have an east-west coast debate here as to the mountains of the west versus, you know, the Walden and Concord Mass. And on my list of a suggested book is a great new biography of Thoreau, um, uh, the author of Walden. Walden is one of those books that is uh, so this kind of creative nonfiction is a really perennial bestseller in our store, whether it's poetry or this reflective writing about places. There's a great interest in that in the community here. I know I've long found we've talked about I've given book recommendations that are like Walden in the past. Right. And right. Um, and I think that has to do with so, you know, you have a book that you read and or an experience and then you go back and you see another author's gloss on it and you get a new perspective retro retrospectively on it. And I think um, that's part of what's going on here. That you're describing. We have, you know, the book on Kennedy and Keene, for instance, by Steve Levinson. That's one in our on our shop window now. Don't you have the author coming in? For we that? he has he is we we have invited him in. So I, I will let okay. you know because I got a copy of the book. I know, and right? I, and I'm I'm hoping. That, I mean, this year you you have done a fabulous job. The store has done a fabulous job bringing yeah. authors some very. Oh, we've very, had amazing folks, and more will. more to come in 2018. Um, nonfiction authors, especially, uh, and. Travis, what were you going to say? Fantastic. Well, we were just talking about that earlier. You guys had an October um, book festival. Yes, right. And brought up um, a poet, um, actually, that, that I, oh. I was very interested in. Another trend, I feel, aside with nonfiction right. and not wanting e-books among young people and, and also myself, um, is a really kind of amazing interest in poetry today. I think I was talking with you earlier about this, Scott, about how poetry has a new life that I didn't see in the 80s and 90s, that it feels very kind of of the moment, and it's the way right. people are speaking and reading across cultures and across experiences, right? And I think it has, has a lot to do with YouTube and how that that's a, uh, a method of connecting people to poetry that, that might not normally be connected with it. And you brought up Joshua Bennett um, earlier in October, right. and I cannot believe I missed I missed him. This, this book, The Sobbing School by Joshua, sounds fantastic. Right. Both of you on your list, uh, you have poetry books, right? Yes, okay, right. Now I wanna, we'll talk about that, Ben. I want to get uh, some listeners in here. Susan in Lancaster has been waiting patiently on the line. Susan, uh, you have a recommendation, or is this on your wish list? Um, no, I've bought several books for Christmas gifts, and two are standouts. Um, I've been involved in amateur astronomy for the last 25 years, and it was actually on an NPR show that I heard someone mention The Glass Universe by Davis Sobel. And I've, been, in my studying of astronomy and whatnot, have always heard about Pickering's harem and how all these women had done the grunt work and the routine calculations and whatnot to give all these male astronomers the glory. So this book is about how the ladies of the Harvard Observatory took the measure of the stars. And I want to give a shout-out to Davis Sobel as an author of nonfiction because I turned on to her long ago when she wrote Longer and she takes a scientific situation and turns it into one of the most compelling stories um, you've ever read. So I'm giving this to my future daughter-in-law, and I have a copy of it for myself. It's timely, too, with the way women are, you know, um, getting their voice these days. The other one, real quick, I wanted to say I got for my husband. I hope he's not listening. Well, I was going to say, book, I believe, <laughs> I was gonna ask that about a of yeah. the trilogy that Ken Follett wrote. And we've been following Ken Follett since the uh, Pillars of the Earth came out, what, 30 years ago? Um, we think his Anglophile is, um, background and writing of historical fiction is fabulous. So I'll take my comments off the air, All but right. those are my two highlight books. Thank you very much for your call and some good recommendations. Yes, right. And um, for those who like Davis Sobold, you might also like Code Girls, The Untold Story of American Women Codebreakers of World War II by Liza Mundy. That is just out this year. It's um, in the vein of hidden figures, except telling about World War II female codebreakers thousand more than ten thousand women who served in this way and it's uh, collected stories and um and accounts of their extraordinary experiences now was you know i have read about some of these women in the past were they mostly based in new york was it all over that they all over the country i i i do not know the details i must okay. read the all book right. to I'll find to, out i'll have to read the book <laughs> have to read the book you're listening to smart talk on witf your home for npr news and all things regional i'm scott lamar 
Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle. Its 11 principal investigators and 12 nurse coordinators conduct research efforts to advance cardiovascular medicine. Information at upmcpinnacle.com slash myheart. Welcome back to Smart Talk. Just a few weeks, uh, you know, I guess the next three weeks, we're looking at holiday gift giving, and uh, we're looking at books to give for a holiday gift or books that you would like to receive this year. And I almost said to Susan when she called in and she said, I'm getting this for my daughter-in-law and my husband. I hope they're not listening. Got to watch that of <laughs> who you are giving them to or how you, you couch that when you're describing your uh, the, the books that uh, you have or would like to get. Give us a call. We'd like to hear your recommendations or the books that uh, you're looking to read or maybe just the genre that you enjoy the most. Give some ideas for those gift givers out there. one 800 729 Send an email to smarttalk at org. You can leave uh, your list on uh, or your recommendations on the WITF Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at SmartTalkWITF. Again, that's 1-800-729-7532. Our guest today, Dr. Travis Kurowski, Assistant Professor of Creative Writing at your College of Pennsylvania. Catherine Lawrence, co-owner of Midtown Scholar Bookstore in Harrisburg. I, I mentioned that both of you on your recommendations, uh, your list, by the way, we will put the, the, their list on our website, WITF.org. I know we always get questions afterwards about what was that book that uh, he or she mentioned? Right. Uh, so we'll put it on our website, WITF.org. But both of you mentioned that there were poetry books. And this may surprise some people because I think a lot of people, when they think of poetry, they think of, oh, when we were back in high school and, you know, American literature or British literature classes that we had or Shakespeare classes. But, you know, it's good to hear. And it's probably not the same kind of poetry that you were learning about in your, your high school years. Tell us about the poetry books that you have. Catherine, let's start with you. Yeah, so um, top of my list is by Joshua Bennett, The Sobbing School. This is one of the national poetry series. And he was one of three young, cutting-edge poets who were part of the Harrisburg Book Festival in October. And we soon will have a podcast of their speaking um, on our website, at MidtownScholar.com, there is an aspect to which that is not just lyric poetry, but really spoken word that that lends itself to performance. And I think mm-hmm. if you if you look at poetry today, we have active, two active poetry groups at the bookstore. I know there are many, many throughout the central Pennsylvania community that meet in coffee houses or on campuses. And um, it is a very accessible act for anyone to write a poem and share it. And I think that makes it very widely, people widely appreciative of those who do it really well. And Joshua Bennett is one who has that great character of an incredible lyric poet with um, issues that matter, talking about coming of age stories, parents and children, issues of race um, from his own experiences, and then putting that into, you know, the neat package of a, of a perfectly turned words of a poem. It's a wonderful, discreet thing to read. I think, too, in a time when we are um, have so much written text media that one could consume, to go to a book of poetry lends itself to reflection. It's kind of discrete sections. So, so even if you're not, you know, the massive tome of a biography reader, you can engage with a book of poetry. I have E. Cummings, you know, on my bedside table right now as a, as a, as something to have a a bit of um, thoughtful, reflective reading in one's life. And Joshua Bennett is fantastic. We had some other great poets there, too. Sophia Sinclair wrote a book called Cannibal, which has won several prizes. Really cutting-edge stuff, not not your poetry from school days. You know, something you just said that, uh, well, makes me think, is that when it comes to reading poetry, that, okay, when you read a book, one of the really great benefits of reading a book is you use your brain. You have to think a little bit more. One of the reasons, as you get older, you should continue to read. But <laughs> when you read poetry, you probably have to think a little bit more than even even reading a fiction or a nonfiction book. Not necessarily, but still. There is some interpretation there, and you have to think about it a little bit more than what you you probably would. Right. So, Travis, so w- w- poetry on your mind? 
You know, sure, sure. Um, yeah, I, I completely agree with that about poetry. My, my friend David Walters, who's a poet um, up in the Harrisburg area, he called poetry a second look. So even if you don't have to think more about poetry, it gives you that space to kind of reflect upon right. something, upon, upon growing up in New York City, upon ideas about race or sexuality or something like this. Mm-hmm. And that Sophia Sinclair's Cannibal is a great book. I'd highly nice. recommend that to anybody. I, I don't have uh, on my, my list I sent you, Scott, I don't have any poets uh, particular on there except one that's 3,000 years old, a new that, translation well, that's of, of Homer. that's kind of what I was thinking about. I heard about that. Oh, it's it's fantastic. But uh, there is um, a book I'd like to just um, recommend because, I think for me, there's two book kinds I go to for gifts that I think make particularly good gifts. It's books of poetry and, and comic books or graphic novels because of the experience of opening them up and you can look at them and read them and experience them kind of right away and they're, they're amazing. But I'm um, Sharon Olds, um, Pulitzer Prize winning poet of Gold Cell and National Book Award winning poet who has um, numerous books. Came out with a book late last year called Odes, um, which I found personally as a 39 year old um, um, white male. Um, to, to be um, just inspiring and eye-opening and, and lovely. Um, the whole book, um, it's, it's old, most recent book, is a series of odes to things that I think typically an ode is, is a, a poetic form. Um, it's not a verse form. It's a thematic form, sort of praising something, right? Um, ode to my socks, Pablo Neruda's um, famous famous praise poem. And hers are, are things that I normally wouldn't understand the praising value of, and they were inspiring and eye-opening to me. Um, and here's a list of some of the things, um, ode to my tampon, um, ode to girls' things, ode um, to single women, um, ode to buttermilk, um, and, and on and on and on, ode to stretch marks. It's, but there are, go- I mean, it, the titles could be clever and cute, um, but the poetry is not. It's, it's amazing. In fact, yeah, there's just some of the topics read. that you probably wouldn't think of odes being mm-hmm. <laughs> written, right. yeah. written about. But you mentioned, and before we go back to the phone, and we're getting some, uh, some phone calls now, we do have some open lines at 1-800-729-7532. You mentioned a 3,000-year-old updated poem. And I was curious, I mean, because, you know, one of the things we like to do during this hour is talk about some of the classics. And uh, you have one. Right. So the same thing, uh, the reason I think I, I like these days to go back to, to kind of nature and go back to writing about nature. Um, I, I'm go- been going back to the, the classics, um, reading a lot of, um, you know, early um, 20th century, 19th century poets, um, rereading some Tolstoy. And I'm really excited. I haven't picked this book up yet, um, but I read a... Um, Wyatt Mason, the New York Times Magazine, did a profile of the translator of um, Homer's The Odyssey um, by Emily Wilson. Looking at this is our first female translation. Um, Wilson's a classics professor at Penn. It's our first female translation of possibly the, the most popular epic in, in, in Western literature, um, Homer's The Odyssey. Um, Emily Wilson's translation um, came out a couple months ago, um, and it's it's been kind of um, hailed by um, translators as very accurate, kind of sticking to the lineation of the original Greek, which um, some some translators, the translators I read going to college in the 90s, Robert Fagels, Robert Fitzgerald, um, felt fine with breaking. And by sticking to that and, and using her skills as, a, as a, a Greek translator and Roman translator, she's translated a lot of other works, has created a really sensitive and different sort of uh, odyssey than we've ever seen before. And, you know, one of the, there's so much that to like about the odyssey, but uh, the odyssey is one of those stories that uh, covers all age groups. I mean, I can remember learning about the Odyssey in sixth grade, but then also reading it as an adult. And you you look at it from different uh, points of view as you're reading it at that point. There's a reason it's a classic. Right. And she sees it um, as a very, I mean, it's been a very male book. It's been part of a very male tradition, and she's going to be able to do something different with that. But, yeah, certainly when I read it in high school, I think I, I kind of more recognized what was going on with Telemachus and with Odysseus himself and not really what was happening with Penelope. As I reflect back on it now, I see much more of Penelope's story as being the wife left behind for over a decade, right, um, sitting on the island waiting for her husband and her son to come back, right, or waiting for her husband to come back with, with her children and all these suitors as the more interesting kind of narrative aspects mm-hmm. of the text. Let's take some phone calls. Nat is in Newport. Nat, you're on the air. Hey, um, great show. I just got a minute or two, but um, I'm not a reader. Never have been. The um, thing I like to read was the back of baseball cards. And, <laughs> and I, I remember my side of the mountain when I was a kid. That <laughs> forced to read it, but ended up ironically being a journalism uh, student. And then uh it was a thing called New Journalism at the time in the early 80s, and uh, our teacher made us read, well, whatever, I always said made me read, is, um, ended up being Michael Herr, 
Uh, it was called Dispatches. It was about Vietnam. I read that book in about two days. I could not put it down. It's the best uh, Vietnam War book uh, that I ever ever read in my life, and I never forgot it. You know, so, I think stuck I... with me. It'll probably stick with some uh, Vietnam. Um, we got the. My wife is ten years younger, so her dad was a Vietnam vet, and um, it's just something for the that generation. You know, they're getting to be the ones that are wondering about Vietnam because their parents and stuff. So it's a it's a great book about Vietnam experience. So that's all I got for you. Thank, thank you very much for your call. But you know, Nat brings something up that uh, there is a renewed interest in the Vietnam War this year because of Ken Burns' film, right. the the Vietnam War that uh, was on PBS and actually still you can see on WITF. But uh, I imagine that there will be. Uh, a lot of people that uh, will be receiving books about Vietnam this year. Catherine, uh, the book Way. Right. That, uh, the WITF Pick of the that's Month right. back in a September, great, I think. Great book. And that's a wonderful story by a journalist who's written on other types of topics, and then he took on this task with an angle that you might not expect to see and a great narrative, just a wonderful, riveting story, even for folks who might not be... It is not your ordinary military history. It's much more a story of the experiences of people on all sides and really fascinating. It is a book about people is what it's about. Mm -hmm, And, I mean, it's it's not for the faint of heart, put it that way. Mm -hmm. But I have to say that it is one of the best uh, books about Vietnam that uh, that I have read as well. Allison is in York. Allison, you're on the air. Hi. Um, I Since you were talking about poetry, I have an eight-year-old girl who has been doing poetry at school and seems really interested in it. Would you have any recommendations for um, an eight-year-old girl for a poetry book? Eight-year-old girl for a poetry oh, book. We have. I I don't have titles offhand, but we have. We actually just. I just created a whole section of children's poetry books for, um, for, for the younger set to read, and we have so many. There are both uh, sort of classic fairy tales retold in poetic form. Um, they're sort of biographies of famous people in story and poetic form. And there even there's a whole group of um, young adult novels for, you know, tweens and teens that are written in poetry um, in the same way that we as adults are saying we're going to it. So you can read a, a story that it looks like a novel and a book, but really it's a reflective poetry. So, so Allison, what kind of poetry does she write? Um, I don't know. I'm not into poetry, but I don't, I mean, I'm not an expert, but I didn't think it was very good, but she seemed really excited about it, so I wanted to encourage. You better hope she's not listening. I started at the eight-year-old level. Maybe I would to poetry as well. Yeah. You know, that, that combination of having someone give their own thoughts and then also play with words and create a lyric of their own and then something that is interesting enough they want to read and share it with others, all of that action that goes into a kid's writing poetry is so important to cultivate. I, I, I feel like I can't help but recommend Shel Silverstein. It's just right. uh, my, my daughter... Um, but, uh, Similarly, at six, got into poetry, and I'm waiting till she gets about eight or nine. I can introduce her to Shel Silverstein's Light in the Attic and the, Where the Sidewalk Ends. Probably come some of the what, best. What are the books? Shel Silverstein's Light in the Attic and Where the Sidewalk Ends. Okay. All right. Let's go to Mark in New Cumberland. Mark, you're on the air. Hello. Hi. Hey, I wanted to make a recommendation, and it's the Bernie Gunther novels by Philip Kerr. Um, to me, I had never heard of them, but it's a very engaging series. Uh, and I couldn't put any of the books down. Um, it's a film noir kind of style blended into the turmoil of World War II, and it's set in Germany, and it's uh, using a detective story uh, kind of genre. So I'd like to recommend that. Okay. Thank you very much for your call. Familiar with the book? Yes. Um, our big detective seller of the year is uh, Agatha Christie's Murder on the Orient Express. Wow. So that is the, that's the, pulling wow, off the tables that's there. that's right. Classics yeah, I love returned. it when you, the classics are, uh, uh, you know, the, the, big, uh, the big seller. But anytime you have a book that you can't put down and, and there's a series of them, that has to be, I, I approve as a bookseller. That's, that's exactly, that's yeah, I was going to mention that too. How many uh, of our listeners have we 
heard say, I couldn't put that book down. I mean, the the one uh, caller who said, uh, I read that book in two days. I right. think that's a barometer for a lot of people as to how good a book really is, is the amount of time that it, ta- it takes you to read it, or you're taking it somewhere along with you, the doctor's office, or, right. you know, wherever, sit on a park bench and be able to, uh, to just pull the book out. Uh, you know, Catherine, you have a... Uh, a nonfiction book here, a history book that I have to admit that if my wife is listening, Lori, I am looking. <laughs> I'd like to read this book. I'm, I'm not going to make pointy punches. That all year long, I've been thinking about this book. Yeah, right. talking about uh, Never Caught. Right, it came out in April. It's one of one of my favorite books of the year. It was nom- It was a shortlist finalist for the National Book Award. It's called Never Caught: The Washington's Relentless Pursuit of Their Runaway Slave by Erica Armstrong Dunbar, who is a scholar of African American studies now at Del. Delaware, and she's written a lot on free black communities in the 18th century colonial days in Philadelphia. And this story takes place in Philadelphia, and it's an amazing narrative reconstruction of the life of Ona Judge, who was one of um, one of Martha Washington's enslaved servants, um, and her escape to freedom in Philadelphia, and then her life after, and the work of the Washingtons as plantation owners to try and recapture her, which they didn't do, and she eventually, 50 years later, up in Massachusetts, told her story to abolitionists of the day, and that forms the genesis of this biography, which is the first biography of her for for an adult readers. We have a kid's storybook version of it, too, but it's a great, it's wow. a great book of history of the time and place because there is not much to tell there there are not many records of her story other than this at the end of her life and uh dunbar does a fabulous job of sort of historical reconstruction and also putting you the reader in into the washington's household so you see the things that were going on okay so there's you know one of martha's daughters is getting engaged will they say yes or no to approve of the son-in-law um these questions of domestic life the washington's domestic life from the perspective of within the halls of the of the enslaved servants there. So I highly recommend it. Well, and something else, that, and one of the things that entices me to read it is that, uh, you know, there's this myth uh, about uh, George Washington. Right. I mean, George Washington, you always, when it comes to the slavery question, that uh, Washington uh, freed his slaves at the end of his life. Well, he freed his slaves. Martha Washington owned like 200 slaves. So Mount Vernon and uh, the Washingtons continued to have own own slaves, right? But you see those paradoxes, really right? At work exactly. On a I mean, not that day to day basis. Uh, you know, not that Washington shouldn't be honored or anything, but it's just a story that you haven't heard growing up. That's for sure. You heard so many of the stories about Washington, right. cherry trees, and all that. Right. But let's go with uh, Todd in Lancaster. Todd, you're on the air. Hi. Good morning. Hi. Um, I wrote a novel. It's a Civil War spy novel set in Lancaster, and I hate being a so self-promoter, but um, I heard it's really good, and it might make a good stocking stuffer. <laughs> you heard it's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, all right, so, Todd, since you are self-promoting, what's the book about? Um, it's about the birth of the Secret Service with a gentleman named Alan Pinkerton. He uh, protected Lincoln during his inaugural train trip. Uh, through Baltimore. He actually disguised Lincoln as an old lady in a wheelchair and uh, got him through the assassination attempt by, uh, by a gentleman in Baltimore. And he did such a good job that, uh, that the White House, well, the, uh, Lincoln made him the head of what we now know as the Secret Service. Mm. And I think a lot of like, local history as well. All right. Thank you very much for your call. In fact, there is some local history there. It not just was Baltimore. Uh, the plot was discovered here in Harrisburg when Lincoln was in Harrisburg on his way to the inauguration. And Pinker, Pinkerton went from Harrisburg to Baltimore uh, to, to stop that assassination attempt. So there is a lot of local history uh, here in, uh, in central Pennsylvania tied to that period as well. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar.
Welcome back to Smart Talk. We're talking about books for holiday giving this year. 1-800-729-7532 is the number to call. Or you could uh, leave a, uh, you could leave your list of recommendations or books that you'd like to give your wish list, books you'd like to get this year on uh, WITF's Facebook page. Also on Twitter, we are at Smart Talk at WITF. And again, I should mention that our uh, email address is smarttalk at WITF.org. 1-800-729-7532. And we have an email here that, uh, Catherine, I know that uh, you're going to love. Uh, let's see here. Let okay. me, I want to make sure I have the whole thing here. I'm just, 60 years ago, I had to read, and I'm putting my emphasis on it, I had to read and analyze Pride and Prejudice in ninth <laughs> grade. Promised myself I would never read another by Austin or her ilk. Recently, read it again and loved it, and now reading all of her and the Bronte's books, a pox on English teachers who make 14-year-old boys read books like that can turn them off good uh-huh. books for 60 years, and that is from Jim in Newberry. Oh, that's good. <laughs> we have some great, there's some great new um, literary biographies out of Jane Austen, of Charlotte Bronte, and um, and collaborative writers of the of the Bronte sisters, um, a whole, oh, just a... I think a resurgence in that sort of literary biography storytelling of the authors themselves, not not just their works. All right. So, Travis, want to go with another recommendation. What do you got? Oh, right. And I, um, I was mentioning earlier about uh, the two books I like to give out, or the two types of books, are, are poetry, I think, because they make neat little sort of reflective moments. They, they're a timepiece that someone can mm. take with them. Um, and also graphic novels, as most people probably know, um, listeners as well, you know, graphic novels are having a resurgence um, today. It's not like they haven't been written about every topic, but it seems like now you can find them in just about every bookstore right. on topics ranging from the West Bank um, to the Holocaust to, to AIDS to inter- intergalactic you know, battles and whatnot. And um, I was reading um, the New York Times uh, about a, a month or so ago, and Douglas Wolk, who's one of the most insightful writers on, on the graphic novel form, um, recommended um, this one book called Spinning by Tilly Walden. And in his recommendation, he noted that Tilly Walden is 21 years old and wow. already has, this is her third book. Wow. And she has actually a fourth book um, on the way already. And so I decided to go back and start looking at, at Tilly's early, early work. I think her first one was probably published when she was like 19, her first year out of high school. And that, that book was The End of Summer. And, um, and then I, I kept reading, and, and I already ordered this, so hopefully she's not listening, um, this book Spinning for, for someone in my life. But Spinning um, is, is, is Tilly Walden's first book that, that is, is not a fantastic or, or um, interstellar sort of journey, but uh, it's, a, it's a memoir. It's a 400-page memoir wow. about her 12 years as a competitive skater. So, mm-hmm. again, not only is she 21, and not only she started publishing graphic novels, well-respected and reviewed um, graphic novels um, right out of high school, and not only is she on her fourth one now, but she had 12 years as a competitive ice skater. And this is 400 pages of that, but it's also about her um, coming out story as a lesbian. And so it's a fantastic, um, fantastic, mature work um, from this this young graphic novelist who no doubt is going to take us places that, that we haven't seen the form take us before. All right, let's go back to the phone now. Deb is in York. Deb, you're on the air. Well, thank you. Yes, Hi, welcome. Travis. Hi, Deb. I'm calling because when my son was in middle school, he was assigned several book projects to read, and he absolutely hated to read. So we visited our local used bookstore. The owner took time to know the boy. She found out what he liked, and she found out about him. Then she recommended an author, Thomas Dygard. And as a family, we read Wilderness Peril. That started the boy off to loving books. The boy is a man. He gives me books as gifts and suggestions. We read the same books, and we are making wonderful memories as we discuss those, all because a person cared enough to spend a few minutes with a teenage boy. So, Deb, what's on your wish list from your son this year? (laughs) Well, actually, we are reading the book Lion, um, and as we finish that, he has already read it. I am a little slower than him now, and we are going to watch the movie together over the holidays. 
All right. Thank you very much for your for your call. Catherine, it has to make you feel good. It does. Yes, right. I think there's a there's such a wealth of books uh, for every taste when you're looking for teen readers or young adults or even the younger set that um, there's much broader choices than you you might anticipate. Well, this goes back to what Jim was saying as well. And and, and Deb, I'm so glad she called um, about how we get our books, um, how we're introduced to books. Jim was talking about how I think in middle school or high school, I mean, he was introduced to an author, Jane Austen, in a way that didn't. It didn't. He didn't respond too well, right? And how Deb had this different experience about taking her young son, who I later had in class, and he was a fantastic writer and reader, um, how taking him to a bookstore and having a personal connection with someone who cared enough to find the right book and understand mm-hmm. the particular reader really mattered and changed his life and their experience with books. And as we think about buying books and reading books through algorithms and apps and whatnot, having some sort of experience sort of manufactured for us, I think we do lose some of the great things we get from Midtown Scholar Books or the Emporium Bookseller in York and other places where it's just organic, natural, personal topography of who we are as readers and what these what these books mean to us and what they can offer us. Mm. Uh, speaking of young adult, um, Catherine, on your list, you have a young adult, and you, you okay, you want a kind of commercial here, but I'll, I'll, you know, I'll let um, you talk well, about you know, it. Actually, what, well, actually, I'll, I'll use it to say that um, that another place to go for book recommendations is your local library. Right, and I was going to mention and that, too. our yeah. young adult author is actually, she her book was, um, her a previous book, Rose Under Fire, is the 2017 One Book, One Community Read for many, if not all, Central Pennsylvania library districts, but all the participating ones, and she's visited the bookstore and visited many libraries in the central community, central PA community for Rose Under Fire, which takes the story of a, of a young woman in World War II and uh, interesting account. And what happened was her, her corpus of works, which was three books about young women in the World War II era, so caught publishers' eyes that um, they invited her to write, coming out this week, the new Star Wars movie tie-in book for young adults from Disney, which wow. is called Star Wars, The Last Jedi Cobalt Squadron. So it's it's now going to be everywhere. I'm sure you'll see this book, but it's actually written by this Harrisburg native who now lives in Scotland, Elizabeth Wine, and uh, and it has brought to sort of modern-day sci-fi Star Wars of The Last Jedi, in fact, this storytelling power and research and sensibility of a young adult author for teens who writes about adventurous young women in in wartime, and now that's come out translated into the modern day Star Wars myth of its own. So I, we're we're delighted here that she was the not just the local pick of the Central PA community, but picked for the Star Wars well, book. You, yeah, you mm. guys were always, uh, when I say you guys, your, your store, yeah. uh, always looking for uh, local authors and, uh, you know, some of the books that they... And I have to tell you that uh, whenever you're on the program, I'm amazed at the number of talented, very talented local authors we have here oh, in so Central many. Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, so young adult let's go a little bit younger because uh, let's face it it is uh, the holiday season right. a book that can be recommended for for children yes right and here's another great local illustrator and i'm i'm we're, we're on the radio but I'm, I'm holding the book up for you it is so adorable fantastic. it's called a boy a mouse and a spider the story of eb white and it's a, a biographical children's book for you know the younger set four to eight a beautiful picture book illustrated by harrisburg resident and caldecott award winner named lauren Castillo and uh, written by Barbara Herkert and it's just an incredibly sweet story about E.B. White and his attachment to animals in uh, you know on the farm even in his kindergarten days um, really sweet and that's our that's our best-selling favorite kids book for the holiday season you know, this year just you out. Ho- you holding that book up would make a great picture Rich if you're listening <laughs> to this I think it would make a great picture. You it, it's the book just up. A, a beautifully illustrated Okay. Uh, We have uh, several emails here. My almost 13-year-old son loves comedy and satire, but many of that genre are a little too adult for him. Some works he has enjoyed are books by Jim Gaffigan, Paula Poundstone, and John Hodgman. Any ideas along those lines? Uh, I don't know that that's that, that that I have have a similar sensibility of a family members to try and seek for. We have some great comic kind of ki- history store 
comic um, Christmas stories. So uh, so we have a collection of stories from about 10 UK writers with uh, crazy comic Santas. That might be the right age. It's got a bit of satire, a lot of wit, and um, and right for the season. See, that's uh, I could tell that the two of you were kind of stumped on that one. You had to think about <laughs> that one. There, There's a new genre. A 13, almost 13-year-old that's not too mature when you're talking about comic and satire. That has that sensibility. Mm -hmm. It does. All right. Uh, Georgette Heyer is a British author from the 30s who I just discovered this year. The dialogue is uproarious and nearly a parody of traditional parlor murders. Rich people behaving badly. Great fun. This is Holly from Camp Hill who recommends this. That's good for all you Austin fans who are sad she only wrote as few books as she did to have published Georgette Heyer. They're now um, in a new modern reprint series from a, a Chicago publisher called Sourcebooks. So you can actually get the whole series of incredibly prolific, both fiction, um, both romances and uh, sort of historical adventure stories of uh, British women in the life of in the during the French Revolution. Mm. Both of you on your recommended list have uh, written about books that talk about writing. Travis, let me start with you. You have a draft number four on the writing process by John McPhee. Tell me about that. Right. So John McPhee has been a, um, a New Yorker staff writer since about 1965. Um, and this book started making waves before I'm sure even the book was under contract. Um, around 2011, John McPhee started publishing these long introspective pieces for the New Yorker about his writing process. And having John McPhee talk about the writing process was for us writers and also really voracious readers like Einstein kind of talking about his, his process about physics and, and, and math. So we were reading every word as though it was a holy grail and had something beautiful to say to us, and I did have something really beautiful to say. And so these pieces were published um, for the past five years. I, I mean, my, my poor students have read um, half a dozen of them already. <laughs> I've shared them um, across the Internet and, and read them myself. And then this book came out, I think, in about um, September this year called Draft Number 4. And it's many of those essays and other pieces where John McPhee lays out, as he puts it, the masochistic self-inflicted paralysis of a writer's normal routine. So I think sometimes when, and this is, this is why I wanted to pass it along to my students um, and teach them ideas, of course, about looping narrative and writing by omission and whatnot, because sometimes we think the writing process and the idea of being a writer is really romanticized, right? And he... You he, think? He, he, <laughs> he, he lets us peek behind the magician's curtain. <laughs> there are a lot of careers like that that uh, people think, oh, that must be exciting. And uh, Radio sounds so exciting oh, to me. I I know. Know. <laughs> yeah, well, let me tell you. <laughs> so, Catherine, you also have a writing yes, book. Yes, and, and this might be the opposite vein rather than giving you the sort of inside. It, I think it's a very optimistic collection, and it is the WITF Pick of the Month for December, mm -hmm. Light the Dark, Writers on Creative. Creativity, inspiration, and the artistic process, a collection of 46 different short essays edited by Joe Fessler, who is currently um, writes a column called By Heart for The Atlantic, and he has asked these writers the question, what inspires you? Um, he's asked many more than that, over 100, I'm sure, authors over the years, and these are his sort of favorite, um, um, favorite writers and or favorite stories and answers to that question, and we you know, there's a there's in addition to the authors telling the story of behind the scenes, the challenges of writing, there's another set of writerly books that are meant to inspire, even if you're not a writer, how to inspire you to do whatever you do with a passion and rediscover that passion of your work, whether it's writing or something else. And I think this falls very much in that vein of um, why why people do what they do. In this case, it's 46 you know, eminent writers from Stephen King and Elizabeth Gilbert to Amy Tan and Roxanne. Gay, Neil Gaiman, all your favorites are are here representing the book, and um, and with this very lovely editorial touch from Joe Fessler. You know, that's I have always said when you okay, you're joking about uh, radio, uh, Travis. That uh, people, everyone has a story to tell. Right. They may not realize it. But everyone has a story to tell, Agreed. whether it's about their own life, something they've observed. Some people are better storytellers than others. Some people can put it on paper right? And or on a computer nowadays. But uh, <laughs> still, that 
you know, it's something that a lot of people thought, yeah, you know, I can't do that. I really, yes, you can. It's one of those things. Tell stories that something you're familiar with, something that you like. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, when you're talking about what inspires writers, right. I mean, that's a lot of times the inspiration from very early on is things in their life. Yeah, right. I think we shut ourselves down as writers. I mean, the stories are in there, and I think we're all great storytellers and we can figure out how to stop shutting ourselves down and work on ways to get those stories out and I cannot re- recommend this Joe Fassler um, book enough um, he's also a, a fantastic fiction writer and, and, and go check out some of those columns online you can read them at the Atlantic Monthly's right. website they're the By Heart columns and they're just inspiring we only have a few minutes left and I want to thank both of you for being on with on the program with us today oh by the way one more uh, recommendation Katie from Gettysburg says a recommended series of young adult books Ranger Apprentice Familiar with the those books? No? Okay. But uh, Katie is recommending for young adults, uh, uh, Ranger Apprentice. Question that, I, you know, I, I, I thought of this because I was thinking about other topics that our audience is very interested in. Antiques is one of them. And uh, Midtown Scholar Bookstore, Catherine, you have uh, I mean, just a huge selection of books. And as you mentioned, you're a used bookstore right. before you uh, were, were selling new releases as well. What's the oldest book that you have in the store? We have some We have some very early imprint, like the, the early, earliest books ever. We have, have maybe pieces of them or, or small, small aspects. So we have uh, some 16th century mathematics, scientific treatises bound in you know in in interesting leathers and uh, so we have one rare books room with uh, lock cases and you can can go and come and get gloves and key to, in what to examine and purchase the book. Well, this one is in uh, Latin, but we've got Latin, French, Italian, lots of really not just old books but rare, collectible, interesting ones. My favorite is actually of of the ones in these these special rare bookcases. It's actually a early edition of. Mark Twain that was a, a 19th century imprint that was actually carried by a bookseller when booksellers were really sort of pack sellers and would go right, from door town to, door, to town yeah. to yeah. Um, to offer their wares and we have the basically the review copy of the day that uh, f- uh, was inherited by basically ancestors of someone who grew up outside Hershey and in, in the barn outside Hershey there was actually this large collection of I don't know three dozen books that this person grandfather had carried by backpack across the Massachusetts hills from Boston out to Western Mass to get the local towns to sell this beautiful edition. So it's a first edition of Mark Twain, but um, that was the, the review copy of the day. That's my personal favorite there. That's, that's incredible. That really if is. If that doesn't draw people up to Midtown Scholar <laughs> Bookstore, I don't know what will. Hey, I want to th- thank both of you. Uh, Catherine Lawrence is co-owner of Midtown Scholar Bookstore. Travis Kurowski, assistant professor of creating uh, creative writing at York College of Pennsylvania. Happy holidays to both of you. Thank you so much. Happy holidays, Scott. Thank you. Coming up on tomorrow's program, speaking of holidays, we're going to be on the road tomorrow at Mount Hope Estate and Winery talking about holiday traditions. That's coming up on tomorrow's program. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a trusted resource in our communities. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, committed to reducing hospital-acquired infections and readmission rates. More information on UPMC Pinnacle's achievements in patient safety can be found at upmcpinnacle.com quality.